Welcome to No World Road, where we get medieval with Rodney Hilton. I was going to say we get medieval in the Hilton, but that that was too many puns at once. So, <laughs> um, so for those who don't know, um, I want to start us off with a brief introduction, and I'm going to pass it over to Regrettable Chris, who is sort of a, the closest thing we have to an approximate expert. <laughs> yeah. We might call him a lay expert on this topic. Um, since you actually have credentials in this field and did study this explicitly yeah, um, for a while, but it, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Now, now you study the other stuff explicitly, but it's yes. still in the same field. So the other stuff for you guys who don't know is reactionary Germany. Cause that's fun. Um, it's actually fun. it is fun. <laughs> it is. It, it's just like, it's fascinating. Uh, and mind blowing. And like, I mean, the things that these guys come up with the way they, uh, I mean, I don't know. It's, very strange and interesting. Do I put the red? Do I put the plastic in the blue bin or the yellow bin? Is it the blue bin or the yellow bin? Invade Poland. That's it. This is <laughs> this is my like theory of why German reactionaries go the way they do. It's um, which that's is... a that's a good like uh, panacea though, right there. <laughs> right. Invade invade Poland or France. Everybody invades France. I mean, and France invades everybody. The thing with Poland is Poland doesn't really invade everybody. They're sort of no. there. Well, they invaded Czechoslovakia in 1938. Uh, fair, and fair. They invaded Ukraine in uh, in the 20s, and they invaded. Yeah. Uh, but who they invaded? Who Belarus? has not? Who amongst us has not invaded Ukraine? Actually, they, like, that's a good point. <laughs> I mean, they invaded Germany as well. Like after uh, the Treaty of Versailles, there's like several little border grabs to try oh, to take yeah. just a little bit more territory. That's where the idea of the bleeding frontiers came from and why the Freikorps went to go fight the Poles. Uh, yeah. This is the thing with Europe. We just need to abolish it and get it over with. Um, yeah, it's like the whole world has kind of moved past the need for Europe. Well, I mean, that's sort of what the European Union is, right? Just abolish all of the the borders and create one amorphous blob of Europeans. Yeah, that, that's, oh, that's yeah. worked out that's really cool. well. Uh, that was yeah, another, yeah, it's working great. Another point of debate. Um, if you want to watch co-streamed on my channel, uh, my discussion on GTA on modern European relations, where everyone calls me either a neoconservative or a tanky simultaneously, hmm. Um, hmm. depending nice. on what part of the sentence they listen to. Um, it's, it's a fun time. Um, so let us talk about Rodney Howard Hilton, who I know as R.H. Hilton. Um, if you look up his book, sometimes his books are published under R.H. Hilton. Sometimes they're published under Rodney Hilton. I don't know why that's the case, actually, why someone would change their publication name, but there you go. He's dead. Um, uh, I would say he's very dead, but he's only been dead 20 years. So he's in, in the scope of our world. He's actually not that dead. Um, he is from the Accursed Isles, specifically Lancaster. Um, and he was a member of the Communist Party. Yes, he was one of the, the cohort of British Marxists that included... Uh, like E.P. Like Thompson, E.P. Thompson, and, uh, and yeah, and uh, Christopher Hill. 
E.P. Thompson, Christopher Hill. Uh, There's one famous one I can't think of. Hobbsbaum. Yeah, that's the one. Hobbsbaum, Sterling, uh, Stuart Hall. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the people sometimes mis misconstrued as Western Marxist humanists, which I think is kind of funny because most of them were diehard defenses of the Soviet Union until like yep. until like 56. You know, yeah. that's usually the point where they get skeptical. What you know that and and you know more power to him, I guess. Yeah. Um, he 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 was an uh, believe he was. Oh, I'm looking here. He was an Oxford Don. Uh, no, he was a senior scholar. That's not a don. I should be very careful with that. Um, they get, and he was married to um, Margaret Palmer of British communist fame. Um, he left the Communist Party in 1956, like a lot of people did. Uh, everybody from Ernst Bloch to uh, like most of the British Marxists, I think. Yeah. Um, I think like Alester McIntyre left around that time to you, um, although he still called himself a Marxist for another 10 years. Uh, and he became involved with the new left. It's, it's so interesting to me. So the French new left seems theoretically French and <laughs> super post Marxist. The American yeah. new left is all over the place. The British new left is oddly not discussed that much. Um, and one of the one of the things I've always been sort of fascinated by it is of the intellectual Marxist movements of people who were slightly disillusioned with the Soviet Union but never became like anti-communist or whatever. Uh, the British Marxists are underread, and I think it's because, frankly, they're easy to understand. <laughs> like, yeah, like I'm see, I'm I'm somewhat serious about that. It's like, well, yeah, it's because it's clear and it's still Marxist, which means. There's there's no wiggle room to make it a new left. Then it's just it's an old left. Just it's at least framed in the same way, you know. Right. I mean, they're sympathetic to the new left critique of like the Soviet Union post 1956 and you know post the secret speech, right? But they're yeah. not they're not trying to reinvent the wheel um, as far as verbiage goes. Right. Um, I mean, I think the the, the most radical innovators are going to be like. Stuart Hall, who talks about about like cultural code switching and stuff, but even that's like not huge, and it's perfectly yeah. understandable. We talked um, about a Marxism without guarantees, and that's <clears throat> very out of the whatever the mainstream for a certain part of the left, the main part of the left. Well, it was interesting though because the the British Marxists, I think, are early on that because mm -hmm. eventually even the Altisarians and the Lukashians basically get there differently yeah. they're completely opposed in different roads but by the end of their by the 19 uh late 1960s they're all talking about like the crisis of marxism and the and the, and the like inability to talk about inevitability anymore and that's all the marxist schools and yeah, the, i, I think the true. british get there first interestingly enough um i don't have a good thesis as to why they get there first but i think they do i mean it's um and yet also Except for like Alastair McIntyre, who founds Catholic Jesus and Aristotle, um, most of them stay Marxist, which is different than also a lot of the other sixty-eight groups. Like they, yeah. a lot of them don't. So, 
I find that interesting too. Also, I really like the poverty of philosophy where where E.P. Thompson beats up an Altusier and all the Altusierians are like, oh no, E.P. Thompson, he didn't win. And I'm like, no, he clearly won. Like, I mean, he didn't attack Altusier directly, but all the British Altusierians like look bad. So yeah. Anyway, um, that's not directly relevant to uh, Rodney Hilton. It's just his context. Um, he lived a long ass time. Uh, he's another one of Joe's. Uh, I think Alester McIntyre stole all their power because <laughs> somehow that motherfucker still alive. <laughs> Is he really? Yes. I had no idea he was still yes. alive. It's funny because I'm like reading stuff from when he was a Marxist in the 50s and 60s and going back and like checking how old he was. And I'm like, he was already 40 something years old. Like, <laughs> like in the in the early 60s. And yeah, then I'm I like, oh my god. Now. He is almost a hundred years old. Um, good old McIntyre, and his his uh, his last book I will also plug is the most Marxist friendly book he's written since 1982. So he writes gushingly about um, uh, C.L.R. James and his most recent book. So the fact that he's 94 and still writing books is kind of amazing, actually. Yeah, especially because they are actually worth reading. I mean, again, After Virtue is a late work for him. Like, we don't really even talk about his early work. But okay, so today, though, we are talking about Rodney Hilton. We're just gushing about his contemporaries. Hilton is cool because, A, he's one of these guys. And most of us here think from from Christopher Codwell to. To. uh Chris Wickman, we should probably try to redeem the British Marxist tradition, which I guess we would call vaguely humanistic. I don't want to call it humanist because Marxist humanism is a specific thing and they're not that. But right, right. But uh but this kind of humanistic uh Marxism and one that I think is not sexy because <laughs> really do part, partly because it's so easy to read. It's, it's not generative of papers the way French theory is. And I mean that somewhat sincerely, like French theory gives you intellectual apparatuses to churn out paper after paper, after paper with just off of just readings. You can't really do that with British Marxist work because most of it's either economic or historical it's not there's not that much i think what jameson and um raymond who are the who are the other who's the british marxist philosophers who are theoretical i mean terry terry uh eagleton yeah eagleton but uh older than that is it raymond williams raymond williams yeah yeah he's uh, one but that's like, I mean, but he's really the only person you can do that to is giving you theoretical apparatuses to apply to papers, right? Like, yeah, he's he's not. I mean, the, the thing about British, the British in general, especially philosophers, British philosophers, is they tend to pretty distinctly map out what it is that they're trying to say and not leave a lot of wiggle room. So you don't have like the uh, just the fog, like the Foucauldian fog to wait yeah. that that allows you to to map it on to pretty much anything you would like to talk about. Say, oh, well, here's the Foucauldian take on, you know, public restrooms. And here's the Foucauldian yeah. take on the Brave Little Toaster, you know, stuff like that. 
I mean, well, that that's the thing. Like, one of the things you can critique French French theory for, particularly Foucault. I mean, Foucault's not the worst in terms of like uh, using higher Heideggerian apparatuses to be completely fucking comprehensible without twenty five years of study and then realizing all of it was a footnote to Heidegger. Cough, cough, Derrida. Um, uh, the but Foucault gives you a way to talk like Foucault gives you a way that like conservatives used to claim that uh, dialectical materialism, which was a talk about everything without knowing anything. Mm-hmm. And I do think, I mean, this is a problem with Marxist in general. And I say this as a generalist who talks about everything, but like, like it is a problem that we, we sometimes we do the like, well, through, through the magic of dialectical materialism, I can yeah. literally talk about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, in very simple terms, which you can understand because it's vague. <laughs> like, yep. Um, and the British don't do that. And and I think that's interesting. And I know people are surprised at me singing the praises of the British on anything ever. Um, <laughs> because Anglo brain rot's one of my favorite insults. But uh, Anglo brain rot with Marxism actually ended up being highly productive. So <laughs> that's true. I, I guess it uh it, it rotted away the the more romantic German elements or something. <laughs> like, um, so, but we're we're reading his classic work, um, class conflict and the crisis of feudalism essays in medieval social history from 1985. I, this book is probably hard to get uh, these days. I don't know. Um, yeah, I got I got it a long time ago on like. A, a books or a libris or something like mm-hmm. a used version of it. I don't think there's been a new printing. Um, yeah. So find this book how you may, listeners. We're not going to tell you how you acquire it. But um, if you want to read along, we're going to be focusing on chapter 18. Feudalism are... Blah, Feudalité. Uh, and... Singuinary, 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 like senior, right. like a senior is would right. be like a lord. So seniory, so seniory. That, that's the, the Anglo one. pronunciation. I have to test my mic again. Yes. Okay. For some reason, it said it was unplugged and it muted me or whatever. So, okay. Yeah. Said to make yeah. sure. Yeah. All right. Um, so. I'm going to let Chris pronounce anything, anytime, anything medieval French comes up. And in France and England, chapter 19, was there a general crisis of feudalism? And chapter 20, ideological, uh, ideology and social order and late medieval England. And uh, for those of you who are new to No Royal Road, I would strongly suggest you don't need to go back and listen to our Morosov series, but you should probably go back and listen to our Wickham series yeah, as, yeah. A, as a precursor for, for this uh discussion because that series introduces a lot of the things that we talk about here but it introduces it in early antiquity uh well excuse me in early medieval europe our late antiquity eh, um what what uh the more uncivilized upon us call the dark ages right where this deals with the entirety of the medieval sphere and particularly towards the end of it late medieval stuff which is uh which we might call the beginnings of early modernism, the the inklings of the Renaissance, depending on how yeah. uncouth you are. Um, the high or, to late Middle Ages is what uh, Hilton focuses on. Mm-hmm. But because he focuses on the transition to capitalism, he deals with early modern as well. Right. Yeah. So 
so this is where Wickham tells you the beginning of the story. This is the end of the story. And I think the way we're structuring these series now, we're probably going to go back and forth between applying this, um, like people doing weird stuff with feudalism and feudal categories are modes of mm -hmm. production and the actual Marxist historiography. So that's where we are uh, in this series. We'll probably be here for quite a while because we're doing three chapters and that will take us a long time. That will take us kind of a long time, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we did spend, what, like seven hours on, <laughs> on basically on 20 pages. <laughs> oh, well, the, Wic the Wickham that we read mm -hmm. was only 20 pages, right? And I think we did, I think we did four, five episodes on that. Yeah, yeah. Morozov was similarly of similar length, and we did. I don't know. I yeah, we, we four we talk about, on that. We can talk about things for a very long time, right? And I mean, with the Wickham, we did keep you know, particularly you, uh, Chris, kept on interjecting stuff from the books, um, <laughs> and I kept on interjecting stuff from other Wickham pieces I've read, yeah. but we didn't just stick to the text there, but. Uh, but yeah, it took us a while. So this guys, this might be a couple of years. I don't know. So we'll find out. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, uh, first semantic controversy in medieval studies is: Does feudalism exist, or is it minoralism, or are that, or is that just a semantic wiggly washy debate that doesn't mean anything? And within the first line of chapter eighteen, Hilton pretty much indicates by using them simultaneously that it's a wiggly wobbly line and shut up. We're not going to argue about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, that's like one of the, the in gra medieval history, grad school, the, the one Oh one, it's like the first thing you do is learn about the arguments about whether or not feudalism actually existed. And there are actually a lot of medieval historians that say feudalism didn't exist. Right. Yeah. Uh, which, I, I know uh, friends of the show who are very much in that school. In fact, I know friends of the show who've taken the arguments around feudalism not existing and argued that economic periods don't exist. Oh, like oh at all. interesting. So that's a, a considerably less clear world to operate in. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and so like if you look at Chris Wickham's definition of feudalism, right, mm -hmm. which is a lot broader than having very, than the very specific only really existing in Western Europe version of feudalism, then yes, feudalism absolutely does exist like all over the place, not just in Europe even. But if you, if you take that, this definition that he's talking about here, that they're nitpicking, then yeah, maybe feudalism doesn't exist in some places. Right. So I think, uh, I think that is interesting. He, he quickly side notes that like, these phrases are more debated over by French than British historians. I'd love yeah. to know the British historiography of, of the time to know why, like why the British don't argue about this. Cause it seems like Americans don't shut the fuck up about it, but it, it yeah. must, we must have uh Gallo brain rot as opposed to Anglo brain rot. I don't know. Um, so um, well, the British Academy, I don't know it. Is it more monolithic than the French Academy? Like, is there less room for debate? I don't think so. I don't think so. I know it's more... I know there's less rock star... Uh, like, there there aren't rock star Saburn lectures that are open to the public that make yeah. people super famous, which created, like, the, the 70s theory, you know, industry as we know right, it. Right, right. 
um, that doesn't exist. Uh, I also, I do get the feeling even more than America and definitely more than like at least the more famous French theorist, there are stricter delimitations on academic fields in, uh, in, in Britain. And uh, there's a whole long essay I read by Lester McIntyre was like attacking the British system for, for this and for its lack of, because it, he said it uh, created compartmentalized understanding since it has no teleological understanding of human nature. It can't, that the, the stuff can't speak to itself. And he was specifically talking about the structure of the post capitalist British academia. But I frankly don't know enough about academia in the fifties to be able to say the specific mechanism. I know that I do know that of the university systems, despite the fact that we share a common language, the British system actually seems the most foreign to me. As yeah. Opposed to the French or the German. Yeah. yeah. You're like, I'm like, so a levels and this goes here and then you go that, and then you get to this thing and it's really strict, but also like, you don't have to take any classes when you're doing your dissertation. I don't get it. Like, well, uh, and, and the American Academy also, you can't just get a degree in the, in uh, England or the, you know, the UK and then come back to the United States they have, there's actually generally for, I know a few people anyway, so this is totally um, anecdotal that have had a really hard time transferring over their credits essentially, because they, they just can't make paper whenever. And also when you have a, a PhD institution, unless it's something like Oxford or something, obviously, hmm. but like, you know, uh, I, I know some people that went to smaller British universities and, like no one's ever heard of them, so they're just like, yeah, well, we'll go ahead and hire someone from an American university instead, even if it is more prestigious and better. If it's not one of the big ones, it's actually hard to get a job. I mean, that makes that makes sense. I, I yeah, mean, we could talk about nepotism in academia another day, but um, right, because I think that's part of what's playing out there. I also think my first exposure to RHH, while we're talking about it in the beginning of this chapter that I just remembered, he wrote the introduction to the Brenner debates. Oh, yeah. Um, so I think that is actually uh, where I know him from. We get back to the thing. So we have, can you tell us the origins of this French term that I'm going to butcher? Which one? Feudalité or seigneury? Uh Either one. I mean, seigneury is translated roughly as a manorial system and fidelity yeah. is translated roughly as feudalism. And one of the things that I find interesting is like the debates in like American historiography is often like, should we refer to feudalism as manor as manorialism? And I'm like, well, in France, maybe both. I don't know. <laughs> like, um, so what's the origins of these two terms? Well, I mean, uh, I know that the the uh well so seigneury uh, you know has its origins well the concepts i don't actually know about the word origins i know they're latin but word origins are latin and they go back to the late roman period i don't know exactly what the word origins are but uh i know that they have to do with specifically feudalité has to do with the military agreement between a lord and a vassal and uh seigneury has to do with the um the uh, economic uh, ex domination and extraction of the manorial system, right? Um, so, like, 
they're both part of the feudal system, right? And I think that's what Hilton argues here is like, whatever feudalism is, it has to encompass both both terms. Yeah, so, I like that he says right. he, he's not he's, he says it's not my intention to engage in a scholastic dispute. And then later on, he's in the same paragraph. He says, if we do not use the word feudalism, we would have to invent one, and it would have to encompass within its definition both. Uh, the, the the two terms that Varn doesn't want to say because I, I also don't want to say them. Uh, feodalite and signore. Feodalite and signory. Yes, Feodalite and signory. Feudalism and manorialism. You could just say that. Yeah, so I like that he says if we don't have the term feudalism, we just have a different word to describe the same thing. So interestingly, uh, signory specifically comes from the French common law. Um, so not the British, and it refers to land tenure or the holding of land, um, and it goes back to uh, late antiquity. So the late, the late Roman Empire, you know, the late Roman Empire, and then it is maintained under the various crowns, and it's basically how things work uh, with both um, uh, the Merovingians and the Carolingians. So there you go. Like, okay, that makes perfect sense, right? It, yeah. I, I, it's the title of the of the of the landholder. I was just that's that's where the word comes from. I was just looking at that. Uh, well, like it comes from the same the same root word that "señor" in Spanish comes from, and "senior" in English, meaning like "senior," like having more to do with like a like not just being elderly, but having attached to that like. Gravitas elderly an authority you know elderly yeah. landholder and thus an authority of the, yeah of, of the hamlet or village or whatever and that uh, latin word is like seniorum or something yeah that makes sense all right um the 18th century you uh he says kept the terms because marx used them then <laughs> 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 um, uh, you know he was trying to do it to figure out capitalism so it was it was used as a mode of distinguishment i've been digging into a lot of the a lot of the marx literature on on the transition because mm -hmm. I, you know i've been reading a lot of like carlos garrido and a lot of how do i say this diplomatically mm -hmm. um less Can't sophisticated marxist leninist who uh, who will use the arguments about the teleology of social technologies? That's the way we would say it. That's not yeah. how Marx says it. Yeah. Uh, but like what, what Marx would imply was like the the way the totality changes the importance of the whole. To like argue that you can keep all the elements. That, you know the the Marxist Leninist argument. You can keep all the elements of capitalism, including value production and and ownership, um, not just money. Um, uh, okay. And private ownership, and still be communist because you're building for the people. And what's interesting is it got me reading those sections about, and it's specifically when Marx writes about usury under feudalism and why it survives in capitalism and in, in Capital Volume Two and Three, but how it has a completely different function and form, even though its origins are pre-capitalist. And he also vaguely hints at that with the markets. Like, it's like his way of saying, yes, I know markets pre-exist capitalism. That's not the point. 
the point is abstract labor and surplus value. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, and so... I, and Wickham so, actually makes that point later about the rise mm, of capitalism. Right. Yeah. So he would disagree with uh, J- uh, Jairus Banaji. Yeah, Banaji who... Well, so Banaji goes in the other way. Um, yeah. Who he he doesn't quite remove all. He's not like my friends who just argue that economic periodizations are useless um, and meaningless because there's a, con- a continuity of like civic groups or whatever. <laughs> like that's often how it's posited. Um, you mean some of the the new forms have hold within them pieces of the old forms? Right. Well, I mean, it doesn't help that I think. Oh, wow that I think vulgar Marxists actually go radically back and forth on whether or not there's a complete rupture between one form and another. Yeah. Or, or there's continuity. And sometimes the same people will be on both ends of the extreme version of that spectrum, mm-hmm. depending on the fucking argument they're making. And they don't even realize that they are. So I get why people have this misreading, but um, it's too bad also, because if they just recognize that they were on both sides, that would be fine. Yeah. <laughs> you're gonna be in a dialectic against yourself that's fun yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it happens <laughs> but i do think it's interesting here because this lays out the terms right like and i think the scenery part of this it, we're gonna skip the debate here but the scenery the scenery part of this is actually i think sometimes either over or under emphasized from the feudal part of this so you either emphasize the the military slash social fidelity relation, right? Like that's what feudalism is based off of sort of. Yeah. And are you emphasize manorialism and the fact that like, you know, the collapsing of civic structures into private manners as a way of, of farming and avoiding taxes in late antiquity yeah, <laughs> uh, is the origins of, of the lead, literally the origins of the legal structure of, of Western Europe. Um, and that is kind of so generously unique to Western Europe. It doesn't happen in the Islamicate or Chinese world. Um, so that's interesting. I think Wickham gets around it by trying to take this essential elements of both and like not being really nailing down to a particular element of either. Right. But, um, Let's see how I, I think it's interesting just that Hilton here really does start us off with like, look, we, we have to admit that both these things are going on in Britain and France, even if we're limiting our case to Britain and France to understand Britain and France and thus the origins of both nationalism and capitalism in Europe, because those are the places that comes well in the Italian city states for capitalism. But for national for national capitalism, you, it's France and Britain. Um, you really need to understand this. So, um, uh, I think it's a I think it's a pretty ingenious way of like both encapsulating the debate and avoiding it in a paragraph. Like, yeah. like, it's, it's it's valuable because it's like he he says let's acknowledge that it exists, but then let's not engage in it because he's he does engage in it and he says basically he says, um, it's not important enough for him to engage in because he's right and then that's what he says. Then he moves yeah. on. And uh, like really, the the Marxist version of what feudalism is encompasses both terms in its definition anyway. So there's yeah. really no point in like worrying about it. If you're if you're arguing two Marxists, 
uh, or with Marxists, uh, then, you know, it, these are moot. The, the distinctions are moot. You have to have a different debate about feudalism with Marxists. Like, a, yeah. Yeah, you, you know, do. Whatever. Yeah. You, you actually have to have a debate of how much is actually the base versus the superstructure. Um, which... well, yeah, and like the idea that um, the reason why feudalism doesn't exist anymore is because of the class struggle and peasants struggled against the lords and won. It's just, that's just not true. Yeah, no, it's not true. Um, and I, I, the funny thing is, I don't think Marx thinks it's true either, but right. it is the Marxist reading. And it's basically based off of a fucking like sentence. Yep. <laughs> like, it's based off of know. one portion of one sentence. Yeah. What the opening lines of the manifesto? Yep. yep. Yeah. Yes, that's it. That's where it comes from. Yeah. And like, and like a gloss by uh, by Ingalls in a letter. Yeah. Like those are the two places you can find that interpretation. But when you actually go back and read Marx, there's no like grand, glorious peasant uprising. That's not how he actually thinks the bourgeois uprisings happened. Like, yeah. no. Um, well, in fact, like if you read the Peasant War in Germany by Ingalls, mm-hmm. he distinctly lays out the limitations of peasant uprisings and how there's no possibility for them to be able to carry, uh, you know, to be the vehicle for uh, carrying on the class struggle. Well, and then I mean, also Marx says the same thing in the 18th Brumaire, except yeah. for like very, very clearly and whatever. Well, I mean, what's interesting about the Brumaire, I mean, the, the, what muddles this later in Marx, I mean, we're getting into the weeds here already. We're not even through the first paragraph, but what muddles <laughs> this in Marx is that, there are concessions of peasant communes later that are vague yeah. Yeah, and yeah, like yeah. hard to square with what he writes in the Brumaire. We talked but about that, this and uh, in the last one where we mentioned the intro to the manifesto, right? Mark says possibly the mere system or the whatever, what's the system called Jason? The, uh, the Obshina. The Obshina, right. In Russia could be the basis for, a you know, establishing communism in Russia. I think but, a critical thing is just to say that like, when he's talking about France and when he's talking about Russia, he's talking about two different places. <laughs> well, th- this is the thing I think it's really important when people think that like the, the stages of, of modes of production are universal in Marx. And that is right. a common interpretation. It was orthodox in the second international. Right. Um, I think you have to deal with the fact that there's stuff that Marx writes that seems to be very area specific. Yeah. Like, like in... <laughs> And uh, and it does sort of like, well, I may, you know, reading the later stuff about about Russia does make me go, well, maybe I should be careful about extrapolating from France and his writings on France, the pattern for the whole fucking world. Yeah. Like, but That's why I, some of the best writing from the Second International is a, is from the non-Germans just telling the Germans, hey, it's different over here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, it, eventually that becomes the entire world telling the Germans, like, hey, it's yeah. different over here. And also, you failed, so shut up. Well, yeah. Um, also- <laughs> um, but but anyway, uh, the I think that's interesting to, to take in as the background to this debate, though, because mm-hmm. it, it, this is one of these essays that you feel like the interlocutors here are multiple. There are kinds of vulgar Marxists. They're the non-Marxist dominant historiographic tradition of, middle, uh, of medieval studies in England in, I don't know, the 70s. Um, the, it's probably us. 
I mean, you know, in some vague mm-hmm. sense, like this is aimed at a bunch of different groups at once. And I actually find this is another thing I really appreciate about the British polemics is they can actually make a polemic against like five people, five completely different people. But how yeah. they make it is interesting and it's different. And it's something I really appreciate about them. They make a positive argument. That's why they're doing a instead of just like a shit fight um, or a, yeah. a critical critique. And I, you know, as a person who believes in ruthless criticism of everything, I do really like winning a dispute with a positive argument. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, there's so, a reason why it's worth reading beyond just the debate. It's also worth reading because it's arguing for something. Exactly. Um. So I guess the first thing that we have to think, he says re- reducing feudalism to serfdom is as bad as saying without their, you know, without fiefdom, there's no feudalism. Um, and yeah. I think that that kind of dual edge is interesting as, as a, as a response to this, you know, I will say one of Marx's more vulgar footnotes is when he says that capitalism started in Italy in a footnote in capital because it got rid of serfdom first. And I'm like, that's not enough. That's not enough at all because serfdom predates capitalism. So obviously you need more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, serfdom predates. Oh, I mean, feudalism. Yeah. Yeah. But also, yeah. What I, what I meant to say was that free labor predates feudalism and thus capitalism and so on. Yeah. yeah. So the, uh, I mean, one of the later chapters of this Wickham goes into a, a lot of detail about why he doesn't think that capitalism started in Northern Italy. Um, and one of those reasons is, is because they never got rid of uh, feudal overlords. Like you still had towns subordinate to feudal overlords. Right. And, and their bourgeois class. I mean, this is true in Britain, too, honestly. Yeah. Though. But their bourgeois class is core. If you really like study it. I mean, this is one of the Pareto points. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like the feudal overlords became the bourgeoisie. Like, and it, Well, specifically like right, in, yeah. in Venice. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, you just switched them out. But in Florence, I think there's more of an argument to make. Uh, mm. And I know that's not the that's not what we're talking about here, but they threw out the feudal overlords and uh, banned them from coming into the city. So, like, I don't know. Th- this might be something worth getting into more whenever we actually get to that section. But there is, I think, some argument about that. And I don't necessarily know if I'm 100% on Hilton's side for that. I, I think this is going to be... I. I the vagaries around the origins of, of capitalism is always interesting to me because for me, like I, I, I see a lot of the arguments for Italy mm-hmm. being valid. But if I take some of those arguments, I could even argue that there's monasteries in fucking France in the 14th century that actually meet the criterion. They just don't become socially like socially viable enough to and they don't break out of the church. Well, they're basically actually... running uh, co-ops, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're running co-ops at for a profit because yeah. of a labor shortage for for, for you know for like monastic institutions basically like yeah um, because there's, a, there's, man. there's a couple of cases yeah. to make depending on where you look that in into Austria even and the only thing that's really discertain is that capitalism developed out of feudalism all over kind of over a long period of time and almost imperceptibly. And I, right. I would I would say with a caveat that any capitalism that may or may not have existed in in northern Italy was abortive, right? Because there was oh, yeah. re- reassertion of the rule of the uh, feudal overlords yeah, after that, a period of a hundred a few hundred years. That's just yeah, kind these, of a lot of back and forth. Yeah, yeah. these monastic co ops in France and Austria too. Yeah, like so. 
one of the things I think that one of the things I think it's always interesting to me because I'm like, okay, even if I accept that it, that Northern Italy may be the origins because of that and the Byzantine trade routes and whatever, mm-hmm. um, I the first capitalist nation state is England, and the second mm-hmm. is France. Like, like, I just there's it, it it is that is absolutely undisputable to me. So yeah, like even the 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 Netherlands is like a prehistory of that, but. It, England is still first. Yeah, right. people will push back on me like, well, the, well, you know, the Netherlands developed capitals. I'm like, yeah, but they weren't, they, it wasn't a coherent nation state the way England was. Like, right. Yeah, like and, England looked at the Netherlands and they were like, we like that, but we're going to do it better. And then they did, and that's what we call capitalism. Right. Um, and I, I, I do think this is where, like, I, I think one of the things, the other thing that we can say that Marxists do poorly that Hilton's avoiding here, uh, I want to point it out, is the political part of political economy. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, um, because that's something I always get frustrated by when people are just solely operating off economic stuff and they're like, oh, it's the ba- base and laws, the superstructure. And I'm like, yeah, but like the superstructure determines parts of the base because it determines the, the relations of fucking production, which are unquestionably the core of the base. The right. mode doesn't emerge from nowhere. Right. Like, um, and the base is the the base is changed by the superstructure, right? They rest upon it. There's like a a relationship between them. It's dialectical, right? Well, this is the problem for me. Is like that the metaphor is helpful for a little while until uh-huh. people start really reducing to it, and then it's a disaster. Like it's like uh, because it leads to vulgar ass economism, right? Like like it's just like it leads to G. A. Cohen. I remember I, I I taught a um I taught a couple of uh, a little episode an episode uh, a couple of lectures uh, for my professor on feudalism, mm-hmm. and instead of saying base and superstructure, I said uh, the soil, the economic soil that gave birth to the 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 you know the the branches the the trunk and branches of feudalism, and I talked about the relationship between the way that the 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 plant the the tree itself changed the soil and the soil like nourished the tree so it's like based on superstructure yeah but you know with a more sort of organic bent to it that leaves room for that well, relation just, that uh symbiotic relationship it's just based on superstructure but like without um any of the hangups that people have about saying those words it's just yeah that's why actually, I did that. it's just the actual way that they should talk about it the, the reason the reason yeah. I did that is because my professor said I drank the Wickham Kool Aid. So I was trying not to sound as Marxist <laughs> as I was. It's like little do you know, good doctor, that I was had drank the Marx Kool Aid way before the Wickham Kool Aid, and so the Wickham Kool Aid came down pretty easily. Yeah. Um, um, no. It, it, well, to me, um, I guess this is the, these discussions. One of the reasons I was interested in this and interested in Hilton, but interested in this whole thing about feudalism, is to save marxism's social understandings from itself as much as to defend it yeah um because vulgar marxism is probably worse than no marxism at all Um, i think that's probably true yeah like and 
and I, I, I just like when you like when you think, oh, there's just modes and it happens because of I mean, you can get to the J.A. Cohen where it's like, oh, it happens because of technological accumulation. And I'm like, OK, like, yeah. well, like, a couple of people who feel that way. Yeah. And that's just Whiggish history. Like that's that's not really that doesn't have that much to do with Marxism, nor do I think it's true. Like like it, of the things we're critiquing, that seems to be the least true. Um uh, and I, my examples of that is always like thinking about the kinds of technologies that dropped away in the in the late antique, late antique early medieval period, but that and we talked about this in the Wickham series, but that did not cause a depreciable decline in life expectancy, even though you saw a yeah. decline in like population, like, yeah. um, you know, we talked about roads and 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 ancient architecture, but like even stuff like hand saws and shit right like 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 the people just they went back to axes we didn't need hand saws anymore and like they even though hand saws you could find hand saws like rotting around getting all rusty like we still found them so they could clearly find them um and yet they didn't try to reinvent it and and I think that that re- to me those kinds of things really push against this like Whiggish view of history, and I just don't actually think Marx held it. And if he did, he was wrong. Like it's it's that simple. Like yeah, yeah. It's like if you're trying to be a Marxist and you're trying to think like Marx, then you shouldn't be able to sound a lot like Stephen Pinker. It, yeah, and and so to to yeah. get to to this on uh on feudalism. Uh, we have to look at both the political side and the economic side and, and those distinctions are a post-capitalist post-liberal innovation. Right. Nobody yeah. pre like 16 uh, 1600s thinks about the word like economic, political, religious spheres as separate. Right. Like like at uh, all. Like, it would not even be comprehensible really. There's not a language for it. Like um, like the the idea that there are different spheres the uh, the idea that there are different spheres of influence for the church and the state uh right. were hotly hotly disputed with i mean you know the and on many occasions the uh the, the church brains winning of out thomas yeah but the brains of thomas beckett uh, like really do uh yeah. make it clear that um that it was hotly disputed exactly <laughs> and and actually england's ability to assert its dominance over the church has a lot to do with it coalescing into the 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 first real what looks like the first modern nation state right it's the pre-westphalian nation state right like yeah. it, it and then unified france unified france takes longer but yeah. like and and then but they actually never really have that break in church but separation yeah. of church and state. They just integrate the, the church into the mechanisms of control of the state. Which my unpopular opinion is a lot of the myth and understandings of Althusser is because he's French and not because yeah. like some like French blood knowledge, but because French understanding of laws and political and repressive apparatuses or whatever are all based on uh, states having a much more absolute relationship to the general public then it's found uh, like even in like more explicitly totalitarian societies like like yeah. Hobbes would never claim some of the shit that Althusser claims yeah. the state can do 
Why? Oh, to, to just to clear something up, to a caveat, so I don't get yelled at for not making this. So did England. England did incorporate the church into the mechanism yeah, yeah. of the state after the Reformation. Right. right. But, really, but, no, nobody carried out the Reformation thinking it's only going to be this one area, and then economically and politically, those uh, those other areas are separate. You know, yeah. <laughs> they were they they were carrying out what we now regard as a Reformation in their own locality on economic and political terms for economic and political reasons. And then also. Yeah. I guess when they we're going to have to read this fucking Max Weber book and decide like, is he right for the wrong reasons or is he wrong? Like, like, yeah. Like, um, the Protestant worth ethic. Yeah. I, I, I I sometimes think, I mean, that people forget the debates about that because we don't want to talk about the other half of that debate, which is the Sombart debate, which is capitalism mm-hmm. is the Jews' fault, as is communism, although I was once a communist. Shut up. Like, um, <laughs> right. So, Well, I, I think that there are merits to Weber's argument and his uh, argument about the de- desacralization process in the, the triumph of capital that happens within the triumph of capitalism holds more true than his Protestant work ethic claims. But yeah. there's some truth. There, I think there's some truth there as well. Well, um, yeah, it doesn't have to be the only thing that anyone ever yeah. reads about, about this. Yeah. No, they, I mean, unfortunately people just, they don't read enough. Although as a, as a real deep dive for, for the, for the true history nerd heads, I learned so much about reformation names. And I was like, why don't we give people weird sinus long names like like God is great breakbones? Like, yeah. like, like I just I'm just like I want those to come back. Like, it's time for like, another reformation. Like Puritan naming conventions. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like God so loved the world, and also I spilt this beer. Like, yeah, <laughs> your second son. Like, um. Anyway, uh, feudalism. And so I think Hilton's insistence here that we do have to deal with the fief, the economic and the feudal, the political, mm-hmm. and also realize that those divisions are ours, not theirs. And there's no right. way it could have been theirs. Like, right. yeah, they're kind of fake in our world, but they're not even conceivable in their world. Like the division, I mean. Yeah, right. Um, so so uh, he talks we get into 1066 and I'm going to let Chris kind of lead this. Uh, so what, what does Hilton say? I mean, obviously other than the obvious about 1066, 1066 is, uh, you know, for those who don't know when William the conqueror conquers, that's what he's famous for and becomes the King of England. When he becomes, when he moves from William, the bastard to William, the conqueror. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know, total loser up until he conquers England, which wasn't really fair because he, he got there right after they got done fighting off a Viking invasion <laughs> and then mops up and becomes, you know, uh, it establishes the, the, the dynasties, uh, the set of dynasties that actually still is in, you know, uh, no, never mind. The newest one is they're the fucking German one. Anyway, sorry. Um, they do claim lineage back to, I mean, like when you count your Kings, yeah, they've, they got, they've got some tenuous claim to being right. related to the the that same lineage. Okay, so um, I mean, but he he are uh, just to, to 
um, to point out that he thinks that the 11th century, when the French style came to England, is when the coherence of feudalism is solidified. So, like, he right. doesn't seem to think that the like Anglo-Saxon feudalism is particularly coherent. Right. Right. For, yeah. So the uh, the Anglo. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. Go ahead. No, I was going to say yeah, like the Anglo system uh, specifics is much more akin to something that like a pre-feudal organization but was it the but the the method of military organization is still similar right in that you you have retainers with that raise up a military uh like military force like they bring their peasants with sharpened stakes and then there's a, a couple of warriors they bring them but like it's not coherent at all not the way that the norman system is the norman system is the most coherent feudal system and the strongest feudal system and you can you can see that in looking at the way that it's applied in normandy and uh, the kingdom of the two sicilies and france you know and in uh even to a certain extent in jerusalem which is the the least coherent of the norman uh impositions of uh um their version of feudalism um and what's interesting is he argues, Hilton argues that it's the most coherent, it's the most coherent in England because they're able to establish themselves as a new elite with none of the baggage of being uh, tied into other hereditary elites right. um, yeah. in France. Like, so he's like, that. you know, it's it wasn't a, a perfect hier hierarchy of obligation because of barons and, and fee-folding vassals and all that in France because there's all this other pre late Roman, you know, stuff around, but right. when they establish themselves in England, they're able to be like, no, we are it. We, we now established the top down feudal chain. Bam. Like, yeah, the, uh, <clears throat> it, it's a writing on a blank slate as opposed to trying to negotiate the pre existing structures that exist in, in France, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the Norman state itself within Normandy, the self-contained Norman state, is much looks looks much more like what we think of feudalism than the rest of France, which has, of course, its uh, uh, common law practices that exist. Because right. yeah, when because when you think of common law, we always think of English common law, but you know, European common law was what everyone based their legal systems on until the Napoleonic Code. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was it, the imposition of a blank slate uh, of their system on top of a blank slate, and they very consciously constructed it. And it wasn't like a like just just the response. It, it was the, you know, the imposition of what they had elsewhere, but in conditions that were uh, just that where there was nothing to oppose them. Yeah, and this leads to Hilton's next point that I think is really interesting. That this is a stronger claim than just a coherent landowning class, right? Because you had that in, in Anglo-Saxon England. Like that's not. It's it's that the landowning class and the military class are like, you know, in lockstep in a way that you don't kind of see again until like the 20th century. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean that to a certain extent, there's not much of a difference between the landholding and the military class. You know, right. Yeah. But that, but I think that's the point. Like, yeah. whereas, like, there is kind of a difference between the land hold the, uh, holding classes and the military classes, and like the Anglo-Saxon system. You do have like small mm -hmm. or warlords and shit. Like, yeah, um, even though they're subordinate to the king. Um, also, I, 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 I think this, this, this explains to me something I could never figure out. Like, 
how did the kingship in England get so like uh, so strong that it had to be checked by the nobility in a way that like the kingship in the Anglo-Saxon England never did? Like, and and it, it seems to me like that the Plantagenets were were operating off of a much more functional feudal order. Mm-hmm. Like, and if you guys go back and listen to the Wickham series, one of the things that we talk about with the Carolingians and the Merovingians and and like Spain, right, is like. They have completely different, they have like multiple systems of incoherent laws. Some coming from the church, some coming from Rome. Yeah. There's like the there's local, there's local Germanic traditions that are incorporated in. There's like Visigothic customs. It's all a mess. Um, and that's kind of true in England too, until the Normans come in and they're like, Well, we're we come in from an out, we have established a chain, we can we can rationalize all of this from a central authority of right. of you know um the norman rulership of london and go like right. the 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 process of defining or so the process of the application of or the creation of feudal law is something that comes along in the uh 12th century right mm-hmm. you have how long between the the collapse of the roman empire until the 12th century before there is a there are systems of feudal law that are being applied and th- that's because Canon law was evolving to deal with this, with uh, the the problems of the feudal land relationships and military relationships the entire time. So feudal uh, jurists began to. Uh, when I say feudal jurists, I mean just jurists that are dealing with the the you know legal uh, the legal application of feudal law or the creation of feudal law. Feudal jurists take from canon law and create a law system to set on top of what already exists, right? So it's like you are, you had, this is a truly a, a situation of the base preceding the superstructure by miles and miles and miles before something is finally constructed on top of it, like in most right. of Europe. Yeah. And that's not replicated anywhere else, is it? Um, I don't know, as far as like feudalism is concerned? Yeah. No, I think that there's there's an argument to be made that there's something of a feudal system that evolves in the Byzantine Empire as well, called the Pronoia system. Right. The, oh, yeah. But but the imperial system is still strong enough there that right. it that it's still the predominant system. And I think I think this goes to explain why like strong feudal states are kind of a French and England thing, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, whereas other the other strong states are all like not feudal like quasi roman late antique empires like the islamic yeah. empires yeah. and and like and the China, byzantine to a certain extent yeah and and the byzantine which has a direct relationship to the islamic empires they inform each other like like it, it is it's literally the roman empire right yeah yeah i mean when people when people go you know they they talk about like muslim predictions about rome i'm like yeah they're talking about constantinople doofus like yeah. Um, and and really the the Pronoia system doesn't really devolve into like a hereditary fief system until the empire is well along it's it's like well past the apogee and into its its, its centuries long collapse right yeah well th- this is interesting because uh um to bring up an, a, a non-marxist thinker that i appreciate but that you probably didn't think was going to come up here uh that the, the the collapse system and the 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 the, dev, uh, the devolution of uh, the the holding system that you're talking about 
according to Joseph Tainter, its origins was actually a way to simplify the empire in terms of social energy inputs, which enabled it to survive. But when it decayed, it decayed into feudalism, which was super complicated. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah um, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, which I think is a, a really interesting way to frame it. It's not a Marxist way of framing it, but it, I don't think it's also in contradiction with a Marxist way of framing it. No. So, okay, so so that's so we have now in our first hour gotten We've through started uh, a page. Um, so uh, I, I want to get through at least another paragraph. <laughs> so. Uh, I think that I think this interesting point about the the um, the actual nature of Lord and Vassal because um, he seems to he seems to think, for example, I'll just read this uh, verbatim because it's useful. It is often assumed that the mutual ties of personal dependence and support between Lord and Vassal, which knit together the regional aristocracies, continued downwards to embrace also the peasantry there could be no greater error. Mm -hmm. The dependent peasant was not a small scale vassal holding land for services, which happened to be agricultural rather than the military petty though the, the village knight might be. He not only shared the ethos of the Baron, he also stood with the Baron on one side of the great divide in medieval society, both living from the fruits of surplus labor of the peasants. The peasants themselves had known, had no means uh, by no means constituted a, hom a homogenous class. That's interesting. That's yeah, actually right. an interesting claim that I want to come back to because that's actually, I think that would be contentious in Marxism. Mm -hmm. um, already by the 11th century, there were on one hand families in possession of land adequate to maintain them mm -hmm. as well as provide rents and services for the Lord. On the other hand, there are already families and small holders that had to eke out a living by laboring for the Lord's uh, demise or holdings of richer peasants or by doing craft work or by gathering or poaching. And I think that's interesting because uh, I think we just see that that uh that hilton saying like look there actually is a kulak distinction <laughs> well yeah, like, yeah. When, when lenin is do, writing uh the development of capitalism in russia that that's the central one of the central arguments that the peasantry is actually not one class but it's stratified and maybe is even three emergent classes and specifically and, uh, here i'm oh, sorry hilton is saying there's at least two yeah right yeah i mean in in this this system the feudal system right of yeah. france you have very clearly three, I think, serfs, uh, free peasants that are eking out a subsistence living, and then mm -hmm. the the richer peasants that may or may not be either serfs or free peasants. Right. Yeah. But they're but they are landholders. They are landholders, all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Whose immediate interest is survival and eking out just a few. A few more potatoes that are not potatoes, I guess, because that's a new world crop, whatever. Turnips, turnips, a few more turnips. turnips. E eking out a few more turnips than they did last year for uh, to either sell for a profit or, you know, have more food, whatever. Well, and also barley corn, my friend. Is, yeah. None of the peasants, rich or poor, lived according to the aristocratic ethos, though it was precisely at this time that the old Indo-Germanic theme of divinely ordained division of society between those who prayed and those who fought and those who worked was being revived in learned theory. Yeah. Which is just to say that, like, we have had a discussion recently. You know, uh, the most recent episode we posted was about, in part, class formation and the, the, the political part of political economy. And this is just another angle that it's very obvious, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that 
that's interesting. And also, I think I think it's interesting then, though, that we're able to say, like, look, the Vassal is not the, the integration with Vassal and Lord is not the integration of peasant and Vassal at all. Right. The, the, the yeah. Vassal is not a center middle class that uh, that aligns with a coherent peasantry uh, mm-hmm. the way that I don't know, class collaborationists imagine the petite bourgeois and and the uh and the uh workers do in our society uh when they also imagine the pmc and uh and the capitalist as copacetic sometimes in this analysis uh i think this is actually really important because i i I do think lenin's like even though I would not defend decolonization um, as as a means, at least not the way it was done. I th- I tend to think Bakarin's point about how you had to do that was like probably way more accurate. Yeah, Bakarin um, should have been in charge of decolonization, right? Because it's like you know you're not going to create a whole bunch of people who now hate you because you killed their family. So like yeah, um, yeah. It's 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 really clear that the revolution was Lenin, the Savor was Trotsky, and then the building the Soviet state, the, the immediate post-war, that was Bukharin. Yeah. But we just didn't get that far. No. Um, Stalin tried to be all three and ended up being none. Right. So, um, and I think that's, I think, though, that, that this here is actually kind of interesting in understanding the structure of, of feudal tensions, right? Because I'd always gone like, well, why don't peasants really see themselves as a coherent class? Because I do think this may be analogous to why workers don't see themselves as a coherent class and fully developed capitalism. So like, like, um, uh, which I, I think, I think actually, as far as like our vulgar Marxism concerns, this is part of why I'm, I'm, I'm generally pessimistic. And I don't think like just fixing the fact that people might hold property or the division between the first and third world or any of that actually addresses the question at all. Like, I think it's actually a way to avoid the problem of the question. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it's a way to obscure the, the problem. Yeah, right. Where, where it's like, you know, the, the only class that seems to act coherently is the bourgeoisie. And in our time, I would say they do so by their absenteeism. So right. like, because, um, you know, they just send the fun shit and back away. That's all they seem to do. Um, it works, I, though. Yeah. It does work. So when we look at the when we look at this, though, like, and again, I'm bringing this up because people might go, "Why are you guys so obsessed with medieval history?" Because I'm like, look, on one hand, I want to defend that our distinctions that there is a distinction between like the feudal world and the capitalist world is really important to understanding everything. But I also want to point out that like if you really study this stuff, a lot of the problems that you see in our current society, they're not the same. But there, you can start seeing like why we have issues with them and the issues that emerged in prior societies in fully developed like, like you know, modes of political economy. Because one of the things I would say about about studying high, the high Middle Ages versus you know the late antiquity or the early Middle Ages is the high Middle Ages are more coherent, at least in France and England. So we mm-hmm, do yeah. have something very specifically we can see. Like, also, I think it's really that we understand the worldview uh, as it existed of mm-hmm. the medieval person as compared to the post-enlightenment subject. Right. Right. 
of of the individual existing in the medieval world as merely a part of a collective and not as an individual as such, not the way that we understand it anyway. Um, I think that's super important. And I think it's like, you know, the the dialectical synthesis of that worldview, the the member of Christendom, the you know, the, the or whatever, and the individual in the enlightenment in the enlightenment is what we hope to to see come to fruition under Marxism or not yeah, Marxism, what, under communism. What we want to see is the the old pre-individual sublated through the ex- experience of the individual. Right. To create the secular Christendom, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I know people I think, hate that terminology, but I, I like it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I get why you do. Um, and, uh, I guess, I guess my thought about this is like, it's also removing like the post enlightenment subject formation in some ways is, is as dishonest as the Christendom subject formation. And that's something that I think, Oh, these are aspirational terms. Absolutely. (laughs) Right. But, but I mean, I, I, but I do think it's actually really important to point out because I'm like, well, one of the things that makes our individualism so readily available is we just lie to ourselves about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't, interestingly is for much as we can say that the medieval world lied to itself about all kinds of shit. And it did. It didn't lie Mm -hmm. to itself about that. Like, that is not a delusion that it had. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's really something to think about. Now, why it didn't have it was probably not great. Like, but um, just but like everything else, every other social phenomenon that we ever talk about, there are <laughs> there are the, the the negative and positive aspects of it. Yeah. I, well, you know. Trying to tell people that nothing is ever purely regressive or progressive really bugs them. So yeah, they really like, don't like that. It's just like it's well, like, no, nah, man. It, it's, go ahead. Especially when you're talking about the medieval world, right? There could oh, be yeah, because yeah, they have to be, either be able to turn it up or down, volume yeah. up, volume down. That's it. Those <laughs> yeah. are the two the two modes. The idea that some parts might be better loud and some parts might be better quiet is just that's too much to think about. I, well, I also think, and this this is a this is I'm going to pick up from a conservative friend of mine, but I think it's something he's right. A lot of the justification of the present is actually based off of the demonization of the past, both the most yes. recent past and the deep past. Yeah, like like every time so every time I see socialists see like, well, the world was always shitty, and I was like, dude, most of medieval Europe was not the fucking calamitous 14th century or whatever. <laughs> like, it's not. <laughs> You know, it wasn't all plagues and short life and no, it actually wasn't that like, no, nobody was rich the way we are rich in the United States. That's true. But like, they also didn't work as hard and they weren't stressed. The the concept of depression, like like as a a clinical thing, it didn't exist. It was was exclusively situational, you know? And the other thing is like the, the kind of thinking that sees the past as worse than the present is usually shared by the same people who think that the present is also not any good, but the future is when it's going to start getting good. So there's always, there's always whatever, whatever's current and whatever has already happened. It's all bad. And then later on, it's all going to be good, but there's no, the, the separation between those two is a, it's like two different worlds. You know, there's, there's no bleed over from one to the other. Yeah. The idea of politics and history is just rupture right like no continuity just rupture right it's like oh there's you know there 
I mean, and it is weird. I don't like saying like, hey, stuff has Christian formations, but like on this, I really don't have a good explanation for why Western Western post-Christian people in specific are given towards calamity than, than good. And I'm like, well, not everybody thinks an apocalypse is like that, man. Like, yeah, <laughs> they right. really don't. Like, uh, some yep. people think in cycles, some, you know, some groups thinking, but like the whole like, progress 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 calamity utopia is like and that's always where i'm like yes accelerationism is stupid um, <laughs> miserationism is stupid catastrophism is stupid i remember uh, um at one point uh the neil davidson's book the how revolutionary were the bourgeois revolutions was like mm -hmm. a popular one and it was being discussed and a bunch of a bunch of iso people were just like they really got hung up on the fact that he talks a lot about the concepts of revolution and the, the um, in a in an astronomer's sense, and the you know people just didn't like that. They couldn't you know they couldn't accept and they couldn't get over the fact that that was the point of revolution in in the way that it was originally used, in the way that it was used politically for a very long time is about regeneration, mm -hmm. which is to say it's just to suggest that uh, at least in some people's mind. Some good has already happened, so we should do that, but more. And that is revolution. Right. They would say that's either reformism or even maybe Burkean conservatism or something. And right. I, I, yeah, I, Neil Davison, I, even though he's Scottish, would not like to be linked in with our English forebetters. Uh, <laughs> that's in, true. Yeah. Um, w uh, w is also in these clear Marxists that people don't like because they write too clearly. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, uh, this is British. Yeah, I mean, although, you know, uh, I would tell people want to understand uh, my books to read on revolution right now. There's a bunch of them, but I didn't list. I made a reading list and I forgot it. And I was kicking myself because how bourgeois, how revolutionary were the bourgeois revolutions, I think, should be read with Enzo Traversal's current book of revolutions like side by side. Yeah, it's really um, good. And so I guess um, I guess it's also interesting. The last thing and we're going to. We're, I think we should probably wrap this up, but we're going to get three whole paragraphs in by me covering this. Um, <laughs> uh, he talks about agrarian society, you know, um, over the course of five centuries. And that, like, there's a, there's huge changes, but what's interesting is that despite these huge changes, the social order is relatively stable. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. um, and the, the thing that you have to remember is um, you cannot just assume that the village community was a collective of individual producers who just worked out like the tragedy of commons or whatever. That is not what is going on. Right, yeah. There's no way to understand uh, that, that, that he's like, you know, he insists, for example, the peasant family holding was never a complete economy. It was an incomplete economy. You could not actually subsist off of it by, by, by just that labor. Um. And it always needed at least some manufactured goods such as salt and dairy products that were beyond its purview, even for peasants. So there was, it was never like the idea of the self-sufficient uh, um, subsistence peasant does not apply to medieval England if it ever applied to anywhere. Like, right. And that's, I think that's pretty big to think about like that. That is because I do think this tendency to, 
to to view like oh, well the peasant was an atomized family and it was like a nuclear family and like you had your plot holding and you lived off the plot and you just had to pay your rent to the to the lord and that was oppressive but you were pretty much on your own that's not true right like, i mean the, the the village community plays a central role um in england just as well as in russia and everywhere right. really Right. Um, and, and he talks about like there's tons of resources that are either dependent on access to feudal holdings or to the commons, you know, pastures, meadowland, timber, stone, um, uh, uh, forging rights, hunting rights, etc. Yeah. Like, I mean, like it, there's a reason why the uh, the folkish nationalists in Germany look to medieval peasants as their vision of a collectivist society, right? And mm -hmm. it, it's because it's that marriage of individualism as well as collectivism. You have yeah. the, 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 the peasant family that exists as an individual unit, and it, there is a, a certain amount of individualism, and you do have mastery over your little plot of land, but you cannot exist without the help of the collective. Right. Yeah. Which I think is interesting because... There's Marx writings that indicates he understands this, but if you take the classic cross Marx writings about peasants in France in specific, it does sound mm -hmm. like he thinks they're itemized individual like subsistence farmers who are isolated from society in a way that leads them to not, not have strong communities. And well, yeah, I mean the, 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 the peasant in France at the turn of the, I mean, when the 19th century is bearing down on you, they have a different kind of a, I mean, he doesn't explain it, but it's different than the 13th and 14th centuries. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, people take that. I mean, I've known people who talk about that as like the condition of the peasant forever. And I'm like, right. that's just not true. It's not even true of a lot of like peasantish societies today. Like, yeah. like yeah. One, one of the things that you go, if you go to like a small Mexican village that still has something that's approaching a peasantry, like, you know, subsistence far farmers who are paying taxes and doing like a side gig or whatever, which it's about as close as you're going to get in the modern world, mm -hmm. um, who who might own small plots and might have access to common lands that are just not claimed. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that those people seem less alienated in their social structures than like urban urban dwelling uh capitalist or rural capitalists in the united states who do seem pretty isolated like yeah um and i think it's interesting because i think we think about the description of the peasant in france and like the brumaire and during the civil war writings the french civil war the, the french revolutionary civil war writings as a description of peasants eternally and i don't think that's true i don't think marx thought that you know, yeah. I don't think, um, and I think the more you study medieval e England and France, you realize that that's definitely not true. That, that the conditions of the peasantry that Marx is talking about is specific to that time, right. like, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think that's a really important thing to emphasize. Like, it really does make it, it leads you to not make certain mistakes. Um, you know, uh, my. I think is one of the things that, you know, I think uh, anarchists often criticize Marxists on that I think may be somewhat fair is like uh, the fact that like, even like quote libertarian socialists, stupid fucking name um, will, will, uh, 
will like fight peasants like like the magonists end up fighting the zapatistas for example yeah. in favor of the liberal government and ironically the the zapatistas get the land reform they want and the magonists don't get shit but but i think that comes from this idea that like the peasant is always alienated like and that's mm-hmm. that's driving them and it's not and it's in marx but it's not just like it people who want to go oh it's just like the bolsheviks no it's it it is it comes from people misreading Marx in all kinds of traditions. Enough well, yeah, that and I like, think it's a problem. Like the German social democrats were like very hostile to the peasants, and when they finally decided to do peasant outreach, it was just about how like pretty soon you'll be workers, and then you know whatever, then you'll matter, and it yeah. never worked. And imagine that. <laughs> and meanwhile, you know, communists in Russia were like they did it differently and better. I mean, I, I I do like to remind people that the dictatorship of the of the proletariat and peasant as equal staters in the dictatorship of the proletariat is a Lenin formation explicitly. It's one of his it three is. innovations, right? Like, yeah, like um, the democratic dictatorship of the proletariat and peasantry. Yeah, right. Like, I mean, yeah, and yeah. The, the the Bolshevik. I mean, and it's not like the Bolsheviks really had a different idea than the social democrats did about the nature of the peasantry. Uh, they thought that if the peasants could be brought into the coalition and then proletarianized, then they could skip over uh, inconvenient parts of what needed to happen in order for them to have a stable state. Right. I mean, and and, and fair enough, they, they weren't able to. So yeah. Right. I mean, but that that's the irony. I, this is one of the end notes points for people who read End Notes Volume Four, uh, a thing that I am super critical of, but it does make a point that I think is actually valid about peasantries. In the 20th century, the peasant revolutions did exceed one thing. They didn't become socialists like we predicted, or at least not in any meaningful sense. Um, But they did get rid of the peasantry as a class. They did. They carried out bourgeois revolutions. (laughs) Right. I mean, that's basically like, like, uh, that's the weird, if 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 you read that, you're like, oh, so basically like the peasantry carried out a bourgeois revolution by i guess accelerating the division of the peasant class into either a surplus labor class or into various kinds of capitalists or petit bourgeois etc so like like they you know that's what the revolutions did once you kicked out the colonial empires that were right. you know uh so i think that's interesting and i think this is relevant to that um that that's the key point i think uh, I think we should stop here because the next section is going to get real expansive. Um, and we're already like over an hour. Yeah. And I think we're going to have to like, you know, cause it's going to start contrasting England to, 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 to France. And I, I think I'm going to have to do some external reading to make sure that I agree with this. So, right, yeah. um, so uh, I hope you guys get go find this book. Uh, this book is fascinating. To, um, uh, you know, really we're not is. covering all of it, but like the chapter chapter eleven, popular movements in England at the end of the fourteenth century, is fucking like I learned stuff from that. Um, mm-hmm. And all those of you guys, why are you referring them to as this like chapter names? These are all discrete essays. Like they're not right. Like you can read, you can dip in and out of this book. So. We just picked three because they were useful. But like when we were when we were dividing this, I will say this as we wrap up. I was having trouble figuring out which ones we were going to do because like every one of these essays is useful to the topic we're talking about. Right. Um, like I read the uh, 
this one and then two later ones mm -hmm. recently. And then I've read all of this before, but like we couldn't just with the way with at the pace that we go through things, I didn't think it would be a good idea to try to do the whole book. No, this would be a five year series at that point. Yeah. Like we'd still be <laughs> yeah. talking about this after you after you have finished your dissertation. Um and, and and if we did that by that point, you might as well have done a rambly dissertation on Hilton too while you finish your own. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> well, I finished my own on the on the weirdo people who romanticized medieval Europe in the 20th century. I mean, it is interesting that you kind of flirted with becoming a medievalist, and then you decided to study the modernist who flirted with becoming medieval. Yeah. Um, I mean, so. the, my, like the entire thing that I'm focusing on now is how the the German quote unquote German socialists in the Werner Sombart sense of the word, right? Yeah, the um, German historical school socialist. Yeah. Marx called those guys the armchair socialists. And it's interesting because I've heard like post leftists say, well, Marx critiques socialism. I'm like, yeah, but you're not even talking about who was who he was referring to. Yeah. It wasn't like it wasn't even Lasallians. It was like like uh like the 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 pre-neo the pre-chartalist and shit. That's who yeah. he's going after. He's like. going after essentially going after the Proto proto folkish socialists, right? Yeah, like the the real the real socialists, right? Or the right. Uh, or what he calls German socialists, right? I mean, so the, like um, that's uh, let's see, just as a side note, just so people know who we're talking about, uh, um, that Sombart's the end of that tradition. Although Sombart's interesting because Sombart was kind of a Marxist at one point. Yeah. Sombart well, um, writes a book on German socialism, defining what it is, wherein he like synthesizes a bunch of different ideas that you could really trace back to Fichte as being like the first the first person that set them down and codified them. Uh, but like that, the the national socialism of Germany, small n, small s, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. And so I think we're like when we talk about these guys, we're talking about Gustav von Smoller. Um, uh, Adolf Wagner uh, and the George Friedrich Knapp, which has been made famous by by MMTers, but that's who we're talking about. And LaSalle's interesting because he's kind of between them in in the rest of the socialist movement. Like, but all those like folkish socialists, they're all class collaborationists explicitly. Like, mm -hmm. that's the thing. Like, the social for them means like a like it almost is a way like the the Italians use corporate. So it yeah. means something different. Oh, like, absolutely. Yeah. It, yeah it's almost yeah. like like a, a guild socialism, right? That's right. That's what they mean. Sort yeah. of a sort of a corporatism, but like I mean, if, if you look like in the Otto Strasser ver, uh, variations of it, it's it absolutely it absolutely is corporatism. But then if you look at like the national Bolshevik variations of it, it looks more like a British guild socialism, does. right? Yeah. And, and what I'm talking about when I talk about the George Sussex thing, I think we're, we're like 50, 60 years before that. Yeah. So yeah absolutely. Like, but the, these are the weirdo neo Kantian state economic theorist people. And that's who Marx, Marx knew about them. Like he called them names. So um, anyway, uh, another historical tangent. We should have, we should have like, we, I guess we should have called this show No Royal Road because we don't stay on one. Um, yeah. so we could just call it no road. Yeah, no road. <laughs> no road. No road. No road. The road less taken because we just ramble around. Um, so, uh, 
but anyway, uh, thank you, thank you, listeners. I hope uh, our regrettable century peeps enjoy this. I hope our Von Blog peeps enjoy this, and uh, we will be doing some more co streams that aren't no Royal Road in the future. I think we're gonna do at least one, if not a couple episodes on what we mean and don't mean about revolutionary pessimism, mm-hmm. as yes, opposed to like, idea. yeah. As opposed to like misanthropy, which which I am an anti misanthrope. I know people don't realize that because I yell at people a lot, but it's not because I hate them. Oh, uh, it's like we yell at the the any kind of misanthropic feelings that I feel are like fraternal, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's like they're, they're against other people on the left, and they're not misanthropic. They're just it's extreme disappointment. I, I I uh like to remind people there there's a book on empathy that I think people should read, which is like the problems with empathy. And it's like, yeah, empathy will eventually make you a douchebag because occasionally with with fraternal feeling, you eventually become like, why can't you get this right? You're like me. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and that is actually an uh, empathetic response. Whereas the misanthrope either just hates you. Or yeah. like as a total nihilist, you don't even know he hates you because he doesn't care enough to make it known. Right. So, but we'll talk about that. Uh, so you have that to look forward to and our long march through class conflict and the crisis of feudalism by Rodney mm-hmm. Hilton. And if you can find it, go look it up. And with that... Thank you.